This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest is Christopher Yuan, who is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. We have affectionately nicknamed it Dallas North. <laughs> I hope right. that I won't be offended by that. <laughs> nope. But uh, we send a lot of people up there, and, and you send a lot of people to us. That's so right. it's a so it's a, a good uh, relationship. Our, yes. our topic today is the issue uh, of um, sexuality in the church, particularly same-sex issues. Uh, Chris wrote a book called Out of a Far Country with his mom uh, talking about his experience of coming to faith. So I think yeah. I'm just going to begin by t- having you talk about that a little bit. How, how in the world did you get this gig? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's all miraculous. I mean, every, anything that happens is really by the grace um, an infinite wisdom of God. Well, you know, I wasn't a Christian, um, but from a young age had these attractions that I never asked, never never wanted. I even wanted them to go away. They didn't. I came out in my early 20s, hmm. and um, I, I was going to dental school, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, came out to my parents. Through that crisis, my mother and father come to faith. We weren't Christians, so mm-hmm. uh, they came to faith while I was going the opposite direction. Hmm. And while in dental school, I, I was, uh, you know, experiencing all this freedom, and um, I got involved kind of in just the wrong crowd in the party scene. I was going out to the gay clubs, spending most of my free time there. Uh, unfortunately, I also began experimenting with drugs, hmm. and to support my habit, I sold drugs as well. Hmm. Well, I thought I could have both, have my cake and eat it too. I thought I could party and be a graduate student. Well as we should, I mean, just logically know, mm-hmm. that doesn't, that's doesn't not a good work. mix. Yeah. So I eventually uh, got expelled from dental school and then moved from Louisville to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And there I kept doing what I knew how to do best. I was selling drugs and I became a supplier. Well, at this point, my parents didn't know what I would do it, that I was doing drugs or selling, but they knew that I needed to know Christ. Mm-hmm. And God had so radically transformed their lives that they, uh, you know, that knew that, that 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 was the main focus. Not not even my sexuality. That was almost a peripheral issue. Where the core issue was my heart. And they prayed for God to do whatever it takes. Um, and that whatever it takes came with a knock on my door. I was arrested, hmm. and I was the confis- the federal government confiscated um, what's e- the street value equivalent to uh, nine point one tons of marijuana. So oh, wow. with that amount, I was facing ten years to life, and found myself in jail. And the first thing that I did, uh, you know, I got a phone call, and I tried calling home, expecting an earful for mm-hmm. my mom, and her first words were, are you okay? Mm. And I think that was, even though my parents were doing everything right and showing me love, but I think that was the t- first time that I was able just to be 
kind of away from the world and realized that, you know, all my friends had gone. I tried actually calling my other friends before that. No one answered, but only my parents, my mom answered. And, um, and you know, I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness, mm-hmm. not, not God's anger or his wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Well, in prison, I, um, one day I found a Bible in the trash can, began mm-hmm. reading it. And it began to convict me. Hmm. And, and really, I would never have picked up that Bible from the trash can if it wasn't for the testimony and the witness of my parents who hmm. lived the gospel before they preached the gospel to me. Hmm. I um, began reading it, and it kind of brought uh, you know, God's truth to, mm-hmm. to the reality of, of my sin. And I realized that all along, I, I had put my sole identity in my sexuality. It wasn't just what I felt. It wasn't just what I did; it was who I was. Mm-hmm. Everything about me was gay. You know, all my friends were gay. I, you know, I, my, my whole community. I lived in an apartment complex that was ninety percent or more gay. Mm-hmm. My the community that I lived in, the town that I lived in in Atlanta, Midtown, was predominantly gay men. I worked out at a gay gym. I worked, you know, went to a gay Kroger, and this was such a part of who I was that I couldn't separate it. F- it from who I was, mm. and I realized that as I get read God's word, that my sexuality shouldn't be who I am. That my identity need to be in Jesus Christ alone. Mm. I also, as I was kept reading God's word, um, had had a paradigm shift because I had always thought that heterosexuality was the norm, not only the norm but God's standard. But as I read through Scripture, I realized that even. Th- if I had heterosexual feelings, I would still need to flee temptation mm-hmm. and put to death my sin nature, as we all do. So mm-hmm. I realized heterosexuality isn't the goal, but I realized that holiness is the goal. God says, be holy for I am holy. Mm. So the opposite of heterosexuality is not homosexuality, but the opposite of homo- uh, hetero- homosexuality is holiness. And I mm. say the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. So mm-hmm. that really helped me to frame the not only my experiences, but my sexuality and my sin and my the, the fact that I'm an image of God and the gospel and Christ, you know, in line with the way that God intended, that I am an image bearer of God with infinite value because of, you know, and, and due dignity, but I also have a sin nature. Mm. And that sin nature, you know, it expresses itself differently in each person. And for me, one of those expressions was my attractions to the same sex, and that I realized that those, that expression that was a result of my fall is not who I am, but it has to be something that I'm that I, uh, you know, would put to death by the power of Christ. So in prison, I became a Christian. Uh, was actually called to ministry while I was in prison, and um, had the opportunity to go to Moody after prison because I never got my bachelor's before going to dental school. Before that, uh, then after that, went to get my master's in exegesis from Wheaton, and then got my just received my doctorate of ministry a, a few years ago. Which actually, my doctorate was focusing on. Uh, it's one, it's the only study on reducing marginalization at Christian colleges and university hmm. for people who identify as LGB or are same sex attracted. Hmm. So that's produced a book as well, I take it? Yes. It, it was just released last year. Mm-hmm. And the title of it is? Title it is a long title. Okay. It's uh, Giving a Voice to the Voiceless, a qualit- 
a qualitative study of reducing marginalization of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and same-sex attracted students. Sounds like the title of a doctor. Any doctoral dissertation has to be long, right? <laughs> that's right. So you can't print it on the program when no. the student graduates. Of course not. <laughs> so uh, that's great. So, um, so talk a little bit about your ministry now. You go around, uh, literally around the world, talking about uh, about these issues yeah. and, and trying to help the church um, deal with this. What would you say are some of the major themes that you try and inject into the conversation as you travel and minister in, in the in the wide array of, uh, of settings that you do? Well, the context that uh, my parents and I are invited to speak are um, Christian, and either the church or a Christian college or seminary or a Christian conference, and, and we're invited because uh, People agree with our position. I, I'm not mm. invited, you know, by people who don't agree to my position, right. whether they're unbelievers or even, uh, you know, maybe more liberal Christians. I'm not invited. So these are people who who understand, who have a high view of Scripture, mm-hmm. and they and they understand, you know, biblical sexuality that that sexual intimacy is reserved for husband and wife in marriage, and that's not something that's just an isolated text, but it's but it's a clear theme from the beginning of Genesis all through Revelation. So they understand that component, but maybe what they might be missing or might not understand how to put in practical ways for their church to understand is how to minister to those within the church that might experience attractions for the same sex or how to then share Christ with those. So that's, um, you know, because oftentimes we understand the truth and we understand uh, morality, but then how that plays out in, in daily life uh, is a little bit more more vague. So that that's kind of the, the focus of our ministry of, of what we do. So you're trying time. to help people both understand the nature of the issue biblically, because you do have biblical studies background, and yet on the other hand, deal with the pastoral realities of what it means. Uh, it, it, it's the difference between making – I say there are three levels to the conversation. There's the biblical level, this is what the Bible says. Right. There's the legal kind of culture element of this is what's going on in our world and these are the laws attached to it. And of course, there's been a big change in our right. lifetime on that score. And then there's the pastoral problem. That's yeah. the mom who walks into your office and says, my son or daughter just came out, what do I do? Yeah. And uh, and and putting all those together in some type of balance is actually a real challenge. It is. And uh, and what what we found, and I, I'm sh- I'm sure you, this is your experience as well, is almost whenever we put up the banner and say this is our topic, mm-hmm. people flock to here because they're mm-hmm. looking for help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So true because it's it's you know like like we said before, this is not just a, a hypothetical. Situation anymore, right? It's, it's not abstract. It is very real in people's lives, whether they have a son or daughter, or brother, sister, or cousin, or a loved one or neighbor who's mm-hmm. gay, and they love these people mm-hmm. and they want them to know Christ. So how do how do we do that? And and I think, you know, as the church, I I, I love how you know, especially our youth and young adults, they they want to know. Now we know this truth. How do we apply that? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think not only do we n- need to know what specific texts are and what we need to do ethically and morally, um, you know, we I, I also make kind of a distinction, and I help people that that come and listen that we make this distinction between the biblical texts, uh, like what Romans one says or Leviticus says, but also we need to kind of step back and look at theology because. Mm-hmm. 
uh, sometimes we'll look at the biblical text and say, okay, this is this is what we this is what is right or wrong, and this is what we we know is truth, and then we jump to the to the praxis part, and we kind of miss the theology part. Mm-hmm. And you know what's the difference? Because sometimes you know when I went to Moody, mm-hmm. we have the Bible department and the theology department, and, right. and I was pretty ignorant then. I was a brand new Christian. <laughs> I was like, what's the difference? Yeah. They're the same, you know. And yeah, it took right. me some time to realize right. the difference. You know, one is looking the text and even kind of looking at the broad view of of how you know the message you know grows. And progressives, uh, theology is looking, you know, at themes that that co- kind of throughout. And so, what what I think is important that when, when we're addressing theology before we get to the praxis is understand a very fundamental aspect of theology, which is who we are, mm-hmm. anthropology, and mm-hmm. and that's very simply that I think many of you know listeners and watchers will know that we're all created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. That's that's Genesis one, and. Yet Genesis three comes along in the fall, and so we all are sinners. We have a sin nature, and that's that's we can't separate those two things. And how does this apply to homosexuality? Well, first of all, if we are all image bearers, all of us, Christian, non-Christian, those who are converted, who are yet to be converted, who will not be converted, if we're all image bearers, well, that means that we are loved by God simply for being an image bearer of God. Mm-hmm. And that we are all due dignity and respect. And so as an image bearer to another image bearer, whether they're a Christian or not, I need to love that person. Mm-hmm. I don't need to show because they bear the image. They, they, they are an image bearer. But then we can't just stop there because oftentimes progressive Christians will they, they really love that image of God part, but they forget about Genesis three. I mean, right. the, the, that's nothing goes forward. That's it, right. you know, it, we don't have the gospel. We don't have Christ. We don't, none of that if we don't have the reality of the fall. Uh, so the fall is such a huge part that that has distorted the image of God, hasn't erased it, but it's effaced it. It's it's you know it's it's the image of God is there, but it's been distorted. And so because of that, and how that applies to homosexuality is that all of us, whether we have same-sex attractions or whether we have another temptation for sin, um, are all in the same boat. There's a democratization that happens when we recognize the reality of the fall. Everybody needs Christ. Everybody needs Christ. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, so you, you, you talk about the theology part of this and the theological part of it is certainly very, very important. You, you have some important things to say about identity, about mm-hmm. being an image bearer, about image bearing um, uh, being something that's shared between the man and the woman. Uh, we were in a brown bag earlier in which we um, broach this topic, but yeah. another element of this that I think is important is is the idea of, you know, you look at creation in Genesis 1, mm-hmm. and it isn't until we get to the creation of the woman that the creation of humanity is complete. And, and, and so she is said to be a complement and a helper to the man in a way that completes and rounds out the creation. And the image of God is something that is, that is both connected to and yet distinct from each of the genders, which yeah. is an interesting idea. You were developing how you see Genesis 1.27. I'd, I'd like to let you repeat that. Yeah, and, and, and why, why this is so key, especially in relation to sexuality, mm-hmm. is because Jesus Jesus mm-hmm. is the one that ties that in. Mm-hmm. in. In Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19, this parallel passage where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees about divorce, you know, mm-hmm. can we just have any divorce for whatever reason, and basically is what they're saying. And right. Jesus, instead of saying no, instead mm-hmm. of saying divorce is wrong, mm-hmm. what does he do? He gives this robust theology of marriage from where? Yeah, he starts at the beginning. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I love this passage and, and, and helping like dissect it because I think it's amazing what Jesus is doing. He goes back and he says, you know, 
we have so low Bible IQ in the sense, that generally speaking, among Christians that that when people say things, they don't know, like they they aren't able to kind of say, oh, this is what what this person is saying. Mm-hmm. When Jesus says, you know, the Creator made the male and the female, and two shall become one flesh. I mean, that's just a really kind of quick statement. Yeah, a Jew. You know, especially a Pharisee who mm-hmm. memorized the Torah knew mm-hmm. exactly what Jesus was saying. He was pulling from Genesis one twenty seven and Genesis two twenty four about mm-hmm. this. Not only you know, in the beginning the created you know, in the beginning uh, God uh, uh, God created uh, in His image ma- uh, man in His own image. And this is from Genesis one twenty seven. These three lines it's it's actually poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, God created man in his own image. That's mm-hmm. the first line of poetry, all in Genesis 1, verse 27. And the second line of poetry is kind of a, it's a repetition, you know, you know, mm-hmm. as you know, Dr. Bach, that Hebrew loves repetition as a form of emphasis. Mm-hmm. And so basically saying the same statement, but flipping it around. So it's, you know, uh, subject, verb, object, you know, God created man, and then the preposition in his own image. And then he flips it around, in his own image, he created him. So it's basically the same, but then this third line, the tricolone, is basically kind of this new concept, but it's basically, it's still the same, so it's all parallel, mm-hmm. but it says male and female, he created, and then them, changes the pronoun from he, he to them, which brings in not only that God created man, Adam, human, you know, in his own image, but then you know, in the image of God, so kind of fronting it, so first it's God, you know, the emphasis upon God is the one that creates and is that one that created that. But then the second one flips it around, kind of the emphasis upon the image mm-hmm. that God is, that, that man is created in. And then the third line brings in this sexual differentiation, which we want to separate that so much, especially not only in light of sexual identity and gender identity, but, but kind of almost say that, you know, that's not important or it's not, but there's no way around getting past the first chapter of the Bible mm-hmm. and not seeing that this is not just a part of who we are. It is, it is a, it is a clear ontological reality. We it's not a footnote on the image of God at it, all. Yeah, and it is, and it is like it's almost saying. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that it that male and female is the image of God, but when you look at it, there's such a direct parallel that we cannot separate the image of God apart from sexual differentiation. It is so clearly connected in that key verse of Genesis 127. Yeah, I think that middle line's interesting because on the one hand it says, you know, uh, in the image of God he created him, but mm-hmm. the him here shouldn't be misread to be just about males. Male, right, the, yes. It, it's it's, it's Adam, humanity. humanity. Yes. And then out of that humanity there's this different differentiation, and the combination of the two together was designed in Genesis 1 to be that cooperative relational element by which men and women were to manage the creation. Amen. You know, the the exhortation coming out of that passage is to rule the creation, is to manage it well. I, I, I tell people, the longer I study the Bible, the more important the concept of stewardship becomes mm, in thinking about the theme of the scriptures. Yeah. And so God has appointed men and women to manage the creation well, to work as a team, mm-hmm. to be to live in shalom, to be in shalom with God and to be in shalom with each other, to be at peace with God and at peace with each other. And in the midst of, the, of that differentiation and yet unity, they're supposed to achieve something that reflects the character and image and, and nature of God. Amen.
Amen. Um, so, and, and then about also about that verse, what Je- what Jesus was doing in Mark ten and Matthew nineteen, in in what he was doing is, you know, we we got in Genesis two the clear the two becoming one. We right. all know that really well, and the beauty of what what Jesus was doing with saying. You know, the Creator made them male and female. Is that's the clearly from the text on the image of God. And so, what Jesus is doing is he's actually linking marriage back to the image of God. And and so that's it's it's really beautiful how you have in the beginning the one, the human Adam mm-hmm. becoming two, and then marriage, then the two becoming one. I mean, it's the only time that you have one equal two and two equals one. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's it, new math. It, it is new math. It's <laughs> yeah. God's new math. Yeah. So it's, you know, we, we talk about marriage as being the mystery that Twelves talks about in Ephesians, you know, of, you know, Christ and the love of, of church. And what we have here is Jesus, the, the perfect theologian, going back to also saying marriage, it is this this union, this one flesh, which also that it's it's cool how the one flesh, you know, from Genesis two that they become one flesh is actually right where before that Adam is saying this is bone of my bone, flesh flesh of my flesh. So it's it's this flesh coming back together that was that was separated to become male and female, now becoming one, and that is linked back to the image of God, which is. Quite beautiful. Uh, and another feature, of course, that Jesus is doing is that when he defines that this is marriage, uh, uh, he's he's dealing with he, he's dealing with the divorce question in mm-hmm. in Mark and in Matthew. He goes back to the beginning. Well, let's go back and let's not talk about what separates. Let's talk about what God's intention was in bringing together. Mm-hmm. And then in the midst of that, he actually defines what marriage is for us. Which, in the context of the same sex discussion, sometimes you get people who are saying, "Well, Jesus never discussed same sex." marriage <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and in fact no he did he discussed marriage when yeah. he discussed marriage and defined it in the way that Genesis does he also discussed same sex marriage and 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 ex- he excluded that phrase from being something that God sees positively yeah I, and I don't know if you've heard this uh, David Gushy mm-hmm. he, yes. how he responds uh, I, I don't know if it's in his book but I I heard kind of heard him say something at a conference. I wasn't there, but someone else. I just saw it on social media. But the way he responds is saying, Jesus, the answer to that was just divorce, so we shouldn't read more into it than what he was answering. And that's nonsense. That's actually, that's, that is nonsense, because <laughs> the whole point of Jesus going back to marriage is, marriage. is the point, right. uh, and, is the point Jesus is making. And, and also another thing, as you know, you know, being you know, Luke scholars that Jesus, when is he ever limited by the question? Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, how many times throughout the Gospels do we have someone asking a question and he and he answers with this big Because kibosh. he's redirecting, because exactly. he's redirecting the attention the of where part. exactly yeah. right. So anyway, and yeah. I, people might have heard that argument because it sounds very convincing. Right, you know what right. I mean? But it's, if you don't go to that deep, deeper level, you miss it. Yeah, because his whole point in the answer is if you understood the intent of marriage then the divorce question might be framed very differently. Yeah. Yep. Let's talk on the practical side here. And and I think the way I want to go at this is is to say what advice do you give to parents when when I'll say the shock moment comes yeah. that um, you have a child, they walk in and they say to you I'm I'm gay and mm-hmm. uh you know, I, I just can imagine that that's just a like a 
you know, <laughs> a disruptor. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's and, devastating. Yeah. And, and so – uh, and so what advice would you give, and alongside of it, what advice would you give to churches to help the parent who finds himself in that situation? You know, in these situations, which are difficult, especially mm-hmm. Christian parents who have raised their kids you know, mm-hmm. in, in the church and, mm-hmm. and, and taught God's Word to them and, and the truth about the gospel, it's, it's never easy when a child walks away from God and walks away from the faith. So for me... Really, the main concern is ministering to the parent mm-hmm. uh, and and helping them, f- first of all, recognize that they can move forward. Actually, oftentimes what I, what I see in many parents is a lot of guilt mm-hmm. and a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes part of that is, is placed upon actually by other Christians. Mm-hmm. And it's often unsaid. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do wrong? Uh, you know, you should have done something better or, you know, and, and also a lot of it comes down to our, and this is why I think the theological foundation is, is important because if we approach homosexuality as a developmental problem that um, people have same-sex attractions because of something that happened in their childhood, um, we're not holding to orthodox Christianity because we know our sin problem doesn't stem from our how we're raised. Our sin problem comes from the fact from the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really important to help parents see that. And sometimes I, I just point blank tell parents it's not your fault because mm-hmm. they're racked with so much guilt. I wish I would have just you know the father will think I wish I would have just stayed home more. I wish I would have went to his baseball games or the you know, mother said I wish I you know what, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And and you, we can play this game and and we can't change the past. Yes, parents could could have done things differently, but that doesn't prevent your child from. It doesn't change the reality. It that doesn't you're change doing. the reality. So one of yeah. the, that's one of the first things that I, I just want them to. And, and I've done that a few, you know, several times, and, mm-hmm. and even in few situations, I say those words, and the parents just they can't hold it in anyway because they've the, all they felt it's it is their fault. Right. Right. So that's one of the first things. But I also want them to to realize that this isn't the worst. You know this this isn't the worst sin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, some parents even will be okay with their other son who's living with their girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like right. we, we need to realize that sin is sin, mm-hmm. and um, though this is sin, uh, it's it's not the worst sin, and it's not any sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover. Mm-hmm. So I I think that's helpful to be able to take it down from the catastrophe shelf and bring it down to sort of more. This is. The world. We live in a broken world, mm-hmm. and we need to just know that uh, how to best pray for our kids, and, and also helping to frame what is our end goal, what is our telos right. Right. Uh, with our child. Is it that they would stop? You know that that their gay son would stop dating their you know his boyfriend. No, because even if he did and if he still doesn't know Christ, even if he got married with a woman mm-hmm. and if he still doesn't know Christ, he's in the same situation, mm-hmm. in, at least spiritually. So, you know, we help parents, you know, and this helps even the way that we pray because I think, you know, prayer is always important with my mother. She prayed, she fasted every Monday for seven years, once 39 days on me, praying and fasting. And we need to make sure that we're also praying the right prayers because mm. what we, how we pray... Uh, affects how we how we live. Mm-hmm. 
and, and, and how we interact with, with a certain person. And, and I think the prayer shouldn't be even necessarily focused mainly on sexuality, but it needs to be on on their faith that they would come to know the real Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe they've lived it, but they never really understood it and grasped it. Like for me, I say my biggest sin was not being in a same-sex relationship. My biggest sin was unbelief. Mm. So recognizing that and helping parents to see that. Um, and then how do we move toward that? And like my mother, it was not her preaching the gospel to me, but it was her living the gospel first. Mm. Um, and so she, she, just through their actions, they showed the gospel and the love of God, and um, they waited for God to move in my life. And they knew that it was going to take rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Not not that's not everyone needs rock bottom. I did because I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> and uh, but when that rock bottom happened with prison, um, I turned back home to the family, and my parents then had this huge open door for mm -hmm. ministry so it's it's kind of waiting for that 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 situation to happen and just hoping that we have such a good relationship with that person that loved one that they will look to us mm -hmm. so whether it's a breakup or whether they lose their job and they're down but they think wow that friend of mine there's something different about her and they reach out and pick up the phone, and they and then you kind of have this open open door for ministry. So, so what you're really saying in part here is is that you want to keep the doors open. You want to signal your love, which you've stressed is not the same as approval, right? Uh, and, and just make it clear. Uh, you you said something in the brown bag that I thought was interesting. It got, don't say I love you, but <laughs> yes, right. Yes. Um, you know, because then the person doesn't hear. All they hear is the rest of the sentence. Yep. They don't. Hear the love, say, I love you, show that you love them, and then in the way that you engage, there's the opportunity to to show what, what, what your values are and your and your care for the person in the hopes that in a ministry of a context that oftentimes involves patience, yeah. um, uh, a door opens up and a real opportunity comes when the person comes to you and is ready to listen. Yes, exactly. And and and, and I want people to also understand that I'm not saying don't ever speak truth. Mm -hmm. I just need to, we need to know when is the right time for that. Mm -hmm. Especially when you have a loved one or a good friend that opens up to you about their sexuality. Mm -hmm. I think during that time it's not I don't know if it's necessary and I don't think it's a good time to then to then speak about what is sin and what is not sin in that very uh tender private sensitive moment, I think it's just listen. Mm -hmm. I think maybe later we can have these deeper discussions about theology. I mean, if they're a Christian or if they're right. open to that. Right. But if they're not Christian, well, then why talk about morality if they don't even believe? Why, why talk about God's morality if they don't even believe in God yet? Right, right. So I think sometimes listening, listening is really powerful. And, mm -hmm. and I think we need to, as Christians, be better listeners because if we listen to others, then they might be willing to listen to us. Exactly. I, I often say that one of the key elements of any any kind of engagement is getting what I call a spiritual G 
GPS on somebody. <laughs> yes. And I, you just listen and get love. And what you're doing is you're listening for the places where bridges might exist yeah, to come back right. into the conversation later. And by in another important thing that I think is in the background here is what I like to call crashing the stereotype, which mm. is um, yeah. you know people, particularly gay people, have an expectation of the way they think Christians will respond yeah. if they say something to them. And when you don't respond with the expectation, that kind of throws person for the loop. You, you've mentioned this in your own testimony, that when you called your mom yeah. from prison, uh, you you were fully expecting to get, I think you said, an earful, yeah, which, exactly. uh, which I take, you, were, you weren't exactly expecting compliments. No. And so when that didn't come, yeah. and she simply asked, are you okay? Yeah. Which communicated all this care and love pouring out in the midst of your painful situation. All of a sudden, you realized she really does care about me. Yeah, yeah. It was not what I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I think that we we need to realize what people in the gay community are expecting. They are expecting for us to say. You're living in sin. Mm-hmm. You're a sinner. And, and I call and, it Jimmy Cagney theology. You dirty rat. You shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> right, okay. Right, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know we we need to know uh, the right time and even the right tone. You mm-hmm. know. Again, we we we're not not talking about sin. And right. I love um, a story about D.L. Moody. Mm-hmm. Someone said about D.L. Moody that only he was able to and had the right to talk about hell mm-hmm. because he did it with tears. Mm-hmm. I don't think often when we talk about hell and sin and we're doing it with tears, right. and we, we need to because right. it, it should really break our hearts what sin has done in the world in our own lives and mm-hmm. in others' lives. Um, so it, it really is tone and it really is uh, preparing the context for which uh, you know the gospel can be. Uh, you know, the best context for the gospel to be shared is in relationship. And, and I think there's much that we can learn from um, how we evangelize the gay community with how we evangelize the Muslim community. Because mm-hmm. I, I think we're, we're coming to a part where we're, where we're getting much better at um, understanding the Muslim community and being able to engage them. And what we do is we have contextualized the gospel for our Muslim friends and neighbors. We're not changing it. We're just contextualizing it. Contextualizing how we share it and and the and, and the process in which we do that, we will not come at them right away initially and say you're living in sin. Muhammad is a false prophet. That's not a good way to share the gospel with a Muslim. That might cause a phaser shield to go up. <laughs> right, Just, exactly. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. And and yet we're okay with you know when you have a Muslim friend and people say, well, you know, I haven't talked about Jesus yet. No one says, well, why haven't you need to tell them? But and yet we do that with a gay community. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think they're they're very similar is that the Muslims have this misunderstanding that somehow we are their enemy or we hate them. And, mm-hmm. and they have reason to. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we haven't been good neighbors. We've, and we have history as well that, that unfortunately they remember over, you know, thousands, you know, with, you know, the Crusades. The gay community, it's more fresh, and they do believe we hate them. So we need to contextualize the gospel with them. And so that's why we come heavy with relationship initially to wait for that opportunity. And that's not unbiblical to wait for that opportunity, since it's God who brings that opportunity to open that door to then be able to share about, not not about 
morality, immorality, but share about Jesus. In yeah, I, I mean, tone matters. So, you know, there are a ton of texts that mention this, um, uh, and I like to point them out. Uh, the, the first Peter 3 passage, you know, be prepared mm. to give a defense yeah. uh, for the hope yeah. that is in you. That's positive, yet do it with, with meekness. Amen. And respect, mm-hmm. and then uh, Colossians three talks about when the opportunity comes. You know that we're supposed to be gracious to all, mm. um, uh, and uh, literally uh, um, Galatians six ten says we're supposed to do good to everybody, especially to those mm-hmm. of the faith. And I tell people, you know, all is a technical term. <laughs> You look it up <laughs> in the Bible. <laughs> you look it up in the Bible. That means kind of everyone. So, so there's no one excluded. So, Amen. so the so there's this this way of engagement that in which I I think one of the challenges of this entire area is is that the gospel challenges people. It does inherently, mm-hmm. but the tension is how do I challenge someone and yet at the same time extend the hand of invitation that's at the core of the gospel. The gospel is about hope. The gospel is about gaining a capability you wouldn't have otherwise. Romans one sixteen says, you know, mm-hmm. we're not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God unto salvation, talking about the capability of God, the gift of the Spirit that enables us to walk in ways we couldn't otherwise. Or the ministry of reconciliation that we get from Second uh, Corinthians five. Mm-hmm. We have this ministry of reconciliation. So our our goal is to is to reconnect people with the living God. That's the hope. That's the enablement. And so when we when we do that, we're challenging people, but we're always challenging people to enter into a, a space that will help them. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I think sometimes our, when I say the static of our critique and our challenge gets so loud, you don't hear the hope. <laughs> you true. don't hear the reconciliation. You don't hear the capability that the gospel is able to provide. And you never get to the positive side of your message. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you, you haven't done a good job of, of representing what the gospel is all about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amen. So, uh, so let's talk about churches for a second, and let's talk about two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've suggested a little bit about uh, about uh, the approach that might be needed for people who are completely outside the church, and, and and then there's a different approach that's needed for people who are inside the church. So let's talk about those in turn. Let's deal first with those who are inside the church, those who are yeah. open and and wrestling. Um, how do you how do you best engage people in that spot? Well, um, I think first we need to make sure that our our churches are a place um, where it is a safe and redemptive place mm-hmm. for people to be open about whatever sin struggle. Mm-hmm. And that was part of my doctoral research. You know, there's there's a huge sense of stigma and marginalization for people just because they have the same sex attraction that they're less than. Or mm-hmm. that there's really something very aberrant with with who they are, and yet. They're they're just a sinner like anyone else who's mm-hmm. struggling with the effects of the fall. We all start in the same place. Exactly. We all need Christ. So um, I think we need to make sure that that we are a place where people, um, feel, you know, the gay community they celebrate coming out of the closet, mm-hmm. and and I think there's a sense where we can almost learn from the gay community. I think the Christ, I think Christians we need to come out of the closet of whatever sin we're struggling with, uh-huh. but surrender to Christ. That's mm-hmm. the distinction. We need to stop wearing our mask and pretending we're perfect. Mm-hmm. That we're all broken. We all need Christ. So that's that's important that we have that that there is. Um, you know, I talk about that I believe it's it should be the church that's the safest place in the world. Mm-hmm. And the question is, are we? Mm-hmm. Are we safe? 
Um, and then so if, if someone is coming, I, I think I want to help them to to realize, um, again, it's, it's, it's listening. We need mm-hmm. to know kind of where, they, where they're at because not everyone is the same. You, you might have some who think that uh, they, they are just so different from anyone else and they just want to be like, yeah, the next person who doesn't struggle with this, and I want them to know, no, no, we all have some sin that we're struggling with, mm-hmm. and um, you know, God can use that to refine us and and strengthen us. But they're not so much different from the next person. You know, the 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 details of what struggle you might have might look a little different, but at the end of the day, it's still sin. We still have to mortify our sin nature and our flesh. And uh, you know, choose Christ over our temptations. Um, among these, some people uh, might think, "Well, you know, I want to." You know, God says, "You know, I can never get married." And um, I, I think in those situations, I tell you know, let's not even think about that. Let's just focus upon today, and and let's grow in your spiritual, you know, knowledge of of God, and grow in that. But don't limit God. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think some people will say, I can never get married, and so I'll just be single for the rest of my life. And I said, you know what? We don't know. Mm-hmm. We have. I know too many people who've been surprised by God. Mm-hmm. And they say, this is the way that it's supposed to be, but then God changes. Mm-hmm. So I say, let's not plan our future. Let's just live one day at a time. I think that's what Christ mm-hmm. means by don't worry about tomorrow. But then on the other hand, we have people that, that want to get married because they think that's the solution. And, and right. so I, I think both sides, we want to move people away from the extremes and and to realize that, you know, we don't fixate on the future, don't fixate, fix, fixate on the past, but fixate today that, that God has given us. You know, there's another emphasis that you talk about regularly that I think is important here, and that is that the church needs a robust theology of singleness yeah. in the midst of all this, that the tendency to elevate the family and elevate marriage to such an extent that you leave the impression that if a person's single, somehow they've fallen short of the yeah. of the glory and ways of God, which certainly doesn't reflect 1 Corinthians 7. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, um, uh, that 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 there's a very important role for having a what I would consider to be a balanced anthropology mm-hmm. in uh, in a balanced theology of relationships in which singleness is elevated as an opportunity to to serve the Lord to be fulfilled yep. um, all the things that come with it yeah yeah you know just as we talk about marriage as something that points to mm-hmm. God and points to Christ. I also believe that actually singleness lived well should point us to Christ in that I may be foregoing things mm-hmm. presently and not necessarily even by choice. Mm-hmm. For most Christian singles that I know, it's not by choice, but, right. but they are foregoing certain blessings and certain things of this world, marriage, in- physical intimacy, children, and yet if we are still able to have joy in our life, that gives glory to God. Mm-hmm. So just as marriage done well gives glory to God, I think singleness done well also gives glory to God. And there's, um, we, it, this is played out in our churches. I, I really think if we don't get singleness right, I don't even know if we're ready to address this issue of homosexuality or yeah, sexual you know, brokenness. I, I'm sitting here smiling inside because I'm sitting here thinking, I know lots of churches that will not hire staff people who are single. Exactly. Which means they wouldn't have hired Jesus. Or Paul. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, so, and it such, becomes such a requirement, and sometimes it's unsaid. Yeah. I, I know men who've graduated from seminary, Moody or in Dallas, 
Midwest where they're single and they apply and no one hires them. Right. And they're very capable young men. Right. But they won't be hired because they're single. And 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 it's, you know, it's kind of taking a I think a text out of context and also this misunderstanding that somehow single men are more dangerous than married men. Yes. And that's such a lie. Now, we don't have a lot of time, but let's talk about the group that uh, that is outside the church probably has a lot of stereotypes of what Christians are about. How do you step into ministry with this group? Well, I think we need to um, change our mindset into less thinking about a program that a church can do as a group to go in Mm -hmm. and think more about how the early church shared the gospel. It Mm -hmm. was one-on-one, and Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's that's a a very effective way, not to say that um, you know, open air is effective, or even kind of going as a group to a certain you know community. That's also effective. But I think we need to contextualize the gospel mm-hmm. and realize that those programs or doing it as a group into the gay community wouldn't be the most effective way. And uh, because there's a sense when uh, I believe in kind of this herd mentality, when it's a group with another group you lose the individual mm-hmm. and you lose being able to kind of get really down into the each person's soul in mm-hmm. a sense uh so i i believe many of your listeners right now and watchers that they have people in their life i can't reach that person mm-hmm. as the mother or the friend or the coworker, you know, who has a gay friend, and how they can reach them because they they already have something established, a relationship. Um, so I think that that's that's really key uh, that we need to um, personalize that event, personalize it, and equip in that way mm-hmm. that. that uh, I think that we need to preach from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Go this week mm-hmm. to your gay neighbor, mm-hmm. invite them out for coffee. Mm-hmm. I think that needs to be said because many Christians think I can't do that because I'll be condoning their sin. Right. That, that going out to, and I, I, I jokingly, I say, uh, you know, you're not going to be condoning their sin because last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. <laughs> right? I mean, it's nothing new. You're That's not right. doing the sin. You're right. just building a relationship and trust so that we can share the gospel. Wow. Well, um, Chris, it's been fabulous to have you with us uh, today on the podcast and to think about some of these things. We've tried to look at this from about every angle possible. We think it's one of the most challenging areas the church faces today, and you certainly have performed a wonderful service to the church, you and your your family, by sharing your story and telling us about what's what's going on. And, and uh, we hope that these reflections on, on ministering in this context, both a theological basis of the importance of Genesis 1 mm-hmm. and 2, as well as the thinking through the matters of tone, ha- uh, help you think about how to minister, particularly in a personal way, in a very relational way, with gay people who you, who you might no, who really have one particular area of sin, but we all are sinners and are in need of Christ. So we hope you've enjoyed being with us today on the table, and we hope uh, to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. 
Browse Bows Podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.